shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. and The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever gone to an event that required a particular dress code for you to enter? It may not even be an event. It might be as much as a store with a sign. No shoes, no shirt, no service. (laughs) But in order to get in, you have to wear particular clothing. It might be a black tie event where the guys have to wear a tuxedo or it might be an event that requires guys to wear a sports coat. Ladies, you have to wear a dress. And attempting to enter the event without proper attire would end in you being turned away. Either you are dressed properly and granted entry or you're dressed improperly and you are denied entry. Well, there is a particular place that everybody wants to go to. And it is a place that you have to be dressed right before you can enter it. The place? Heaven. Now, a lot of people don't think that in order to get to heaven, you have to dress a particular way. But Paul tells us you do. Paul tells us that there is a particular garment that you must wear before you enter into the eternal kingdom of God, before you can enjoy the joys of heaven forever, you have to be dressed right before you get to heaven. Now, what is it that we have to wear in order for us to be able to get to heaven? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, the latter part, Paul tells us exactly what it is that we have to wear. In fact, he tells us that we have to put it on. He says over and over again that we've got to put something on in order for us to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. As a matter of fact, he starts this section out not by telling us what we have to put on, but by telling us why we have to put it on. He begins with a prohibition because he says in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Paul here, when he speaks of flesh and blood, is speaking of our mortal, sin-cursed body that he likens to a garment. He likens our fleshly body to a garment that we wear. He says when it comes to entering the kingdom of heaven, you can't get in wearing what you're wearing because you're not dressed right. As a matter of fact, heaven is an imperishable place. 
But we're clothed now in a perishable garment. Heaven is an incorruptible place. But right now we are dressed with corruptible garments. And thus Paul says that in order for us to get to heaven and enjoy heaven and endure heaven, we've got to have a change of garments. And the good news is that God in his grace, God in his goodness has provided the proper attire that we need to leave this world and to enjoy the beauties and the glories of heaven forever. Thus, thus, he has provided the garment, the clothing, the body that is needed for us to get to heaven. But here's the catcher. We don't get it immediately. We've got to wait for it. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us that we will receive our new garment. We will receive our new clothing. We will be fitted perfectly for heaven at the same time at the resurrection from the dead. And all through 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has been focusing on the resurrection. He begins this chapter with some heresy that is moving throughout Corinth. Some people in their midst were saying that there was no resurrection from the dead. So Paul takes that heresy and he says to the believers that if there is no resurrection, then Christ isn't risen. He was a man who died and who was physically raised from the dead and thus the gospel crumbles. And if the gospel crumbles, our hope crumbles. And if our hope crumbles, then we are stupid people who need to be pitied by the world for believing such a fairy tale. But Paul reminds us That now Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have slept. And now his resurrection has already started. The end time resurrection of all of God's people. He came forth from the grave as the first of a new humanity. Who will be raised in glory and in power to enjoy the beauties of God forever. And now... As he closes out this chapter, as he brings all of his arguments about the resurrection together, he wants us to know that that those who have died in Christ and those who are still living when Christ returns at the moment of the change, we're all going to be changed together and we are going to enjoy this moment together. Now, our text, verses 50 through 57, focus mainly on what's going to take place. Uh, Paul's going to tell us that we need to anticipate what's going to happen in the future in verses 50 through 57. But he closes out this chapter by telling us that we need to be active in the present. So again, what he does here is what he has done so far. He gives us a future glimpse of glory, and then he's going to call us to action based on that future glimpse of glory. And so what I want to do is take verse 50 through 57. And I want us to anticipate the future. What's going to happen to God's people when we change our clothing, if you will, at the resurrection. And then at the end, in verse 58, we're going to look at the present and see how belief in the resurrection shapes the way we live for the Lord today. So, the future. What does Paul tell us about the future? Well, in verse 50 through 57, he unpacks our future garment change. And as he's unpacking it, look in verse 51. Paul tells us, behold, I tell you a mystery. 
We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, what Paul begins with is Paul begins by telling us what he's about to tell us is a mystery. And if you've been here on Wednesday night, you know that when Paul uses the phrase or the term mystery in the New Testament, he is not talking about a, a, a Sherlock Holmes whodunit. He's not talking about pieces of a puzzle you have to put together. In the New Testament, a mystery is an eternal truth that was previously concealed in the Old Testament but has been fully revealed in the New Testament through the gospel. It is a truth previously concealed in the Old but now revealed through Christ in the New Testament. And what is the particular mystery that he speaks of here in this passage? Well, the particular mystery that had been hidden but has now revealed to us is the mystery of how God's people are going to be raised from the dead, how it works and how those who are living at the time of Christ's coming will be changed as well. Now, what is this mystery? What's going to take place? Well, first Paul tells us that there will be a call. God is going to call his people to himself. Now, how is this going to happen? Well, first he tells us that the trumpet is going to sound. Look in verse 52. Paul says in verse 52 uh, that in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul tells us that Jesus is going to descend from heaven with a shout, a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. Now, what trumpet has Paul got in mind here? There are some who jump over to Revelation and say he's talking about the seventh trumpet in that series, and then there's much debate about other trumpets. I tell you what, I think Paul probably has in mind here just the overall use of trumpet in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, when you read about a trumpet being sounded, they were sounded for several different reasons. Uh, for instance, in Leviticus 25, the trumpet was sounded on the day of Jubilee, uh, whenever it marked the beginning of the year of Jubilee. The, 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 the part that, that marked the beginning of Jubilee was the sounding of a trumpet on the Day of Atonement. Later in Numbers 10, when God's people are wandering through the wilderness, when they would stop and they would set up camp, what was it that sounded to the people to tell them to withdraw from camp, to pack up and to head out? It was the sounding of a silver trumpet. And when the trumpet sounded, God's people gathered their things together and they withdrew from that place. And then in Isaiah 27, when he speaks about the exiles of God returning from uh, returning to their homeland from Assyria and from Egypt, what was it that sounded when God's people returned home from exile? It was a trumpet. And so I think maybe if you take that collectively, Paul is drawing on that idea and saying to God's people that in the future there is going to come a sound when the trumpet is going to break forth and God is going to blow a trumpet. And when God sounds that trumpet on that day, God's people will experience the ultimate jubilee. 
Freedom like they have never known. Deliverance like they have never known. And full atonement even to the redemption of their bodies. And when that trumpet sounds, it will be a, it will be a call for God's people to withdraw from where they are at and come be with him. Paul says that we will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. And then it will also be a call for God's exiles to return home. This morning in Sunday school, Brother Justin taught through 1 Peter. And over and over and over again, Peter reminds God's people that while we are in this world, we are exiles. We are pilgrims. This world is not our home. We are just passing through. But on that day, when the trumpet sounds, on that day, God's exiles scattered throughout the globe will be gathered together to be with him forever. Beloved, there will be a call. The trumpet will sound, and there will be a call, and the dead will rise. Look what he says in verse 52. The dead will be raised. Remarkable. One of my favorite verses in the Gospel of John comes in chapter 5, verse 25, where Jesus says this to the listeners. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and it is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those that hear will live. What a remarkable statement that he speaks with such power that the dead will hear it. And they'll not only hear it, they will obey it and they will come forth. Who else has power like that? When you look through Christ's ministry, you'll find that, that, that oftentimes his cry was powerful enough to, to raise the dead. It was Jesus who walks to the tomb of Lazarus who'd been dead four days and even stank. And as he walks to the tomb, he prays and he stands up and he cries with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And on that day, a man comes walking forth out of the tomb alive. Do you know when Jesus is dying on the cross? The Bible says in Matthew 27 that he cried with a loud cry and he gave up the ghost. Do you know what happened after he cried and he died on that cross? The Bible says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. But it also says something else. It also says that the graves were opened up and many people came forth out of their graves. And they were seen in the city. So imagine that. Jesus cries and a man comes walking out of the tomb. Jesus, as he's dying, cries again. And this time, many people come forth walking out of the tomb. But there is yet a Christ to come. There is still a time in which he will cry forth and he will call his people and not a mere man and not many will come forth but a multitude that no man could number is going to come forth out of their graves and they will be raised to life forever. There is coming a day when the dead is going to be raised. But what if you're alive when Jesus comes? Well, have no fear. Paul says that the living will be transformed. You know, in, when Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, the question in 1 Thessalonians was this. Have my loved ones who died before Jesus returns missed the second coming of Jesus? 
And Paul writes to them and says, no, they haven't missed the second coming of Jesus. They'll experience it because he's going to resurrect them. They're going to be resurrected. We won't go before them. Uh, They'll be be raised from the dead first. As someone said, they've got six feet further to come than we've got. And then we will all be called up together to meet the Lord in the air. So loved ones who have died will not miss the second coming of Jesus. Well, the flip side of that question almost seems to be answered in, in 1, Thessalonians, or 1 Corinthians 15. Not have loved ones who have died miss the resurrection of Jesus, but will saints who are living at the second coming miss the resurrection? I mean, think about it. In order to be resurrected, you think you have to be dead first to experience it, right? Probably. But Paul says, listen, saints aren't going to miss the resurrection. Because what's going to happen is what's happening to the saints in the grave in their body is going to be happening to living saints at the time outside of the tomb. In other words, they are going to be changed instantly. Look what Paul says here in this passage. Paul says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What does that mean? Paul means that there is a group of people in this world who will be alive when Jesus returns and they will not experience death. They are going to be transformed whenever he returns. So what do we have to look forward to? Well, first there's going to be a call. He's going to call his people with a trumpet. The dead are going to rise and those who are alive aren't going to miss the resurrection. They're going to be transformed right where they stand. But with this call, there's also going to be a change. Paul says over and over again that we are going to be changed. We're going to put on something else. The saints whose body now rests in the grave, they're going to be changed. The saints who are living at the time of Christ's return, they are going to be changed. And they're all going to put on the same garment. And they're going to put on the same garment at the same time. And the change is going to be immediate. Look what Paul says in verse 52. He says it will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That is, immediately, whenever the trumpet sounds, immediately, God's people are going to be changed. It's not going to be a gradual change that takes place over time. It's not going to be a slow change that takes place over time. It's going to be immediate. You know, our bodies change. Uh, You look at... You know, one of the things with Facebook, it shows you every single day, four years ago on this day, five years ago on this day, two years ago on this day, and you look at your memories. Some of those memories have old pictures, and you look at those old pictures of you, you look at what you look like then, you look, like, you look at what you look at like now, and uh, you think, boy, I've, I've changed. Well, our bodies change over time, and that change is gradual, whether you're trying to to get in shape or whether you fall out of shape. It happens gradually over time. But you know what? On that day, whenever we are resurrected, there will be no gradual change. It will be an instant change immediately. We will put on our new glorified resurrected bodies. And this change isn't just going to be immediate. It's going to be before the twinkling of an eye, before you can blink. He also tells us that it's going to be immense. That is, it's going to be a change like you would not believe. Notice what Paul says. Paul says that we will all be changed in verse 52. 
or verse 51. In verse 52, he says the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Verse 53, for this perishable body, watch this, must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now, that's not an option. That is something that has to happen. It must happen. Otherwise, we can't endure heaven. Without these bodies, we could not endure heaven forever. Our fleshly bodies could not, our sin-cursed bodies could not withstand it. We would die. But on that day, we are going to receive new bodies, bodies that will be suitable for heaven, bodies that can endure heaven, and bodies that can enjoy heaven forever. Paul says it's such an immense change because our bodies will be imperishable. What does that mean? It means there'll be no decay. There'll be no getting old. Our bodies now all bear the marks of sin. Our bodies now get old. Our bodies now get sick. Our bodies now battle diseases. And yet our bodies are perishable. That's what our bodies are now. And, and someone has rightly said, from the moment we start to live, we actually begin dying. You know, think of, think of our bodies and think of our loved ones, what some of them have endured because they lived in perishable bodies. Some of our loved ones and some of us have battled chronic diseases. Some have had their minds stolen by Alzheimer's. Some have been mutilated in wrecks. Some have been riddled with disabilities. Some have fought heart disease. Some other problems that they had faced all of their life, all because our bodies are perishable. But what will happen at the resurrection is they will put on a new body that will be disease-free, right mind, fully healthy, completely whole in that day. It will no longer be perishable because it will no longer bear the marks of sin. For those who are alive when Jesus returns, Paul says the same thing's going to happen to us. We will be changed. We will receive imperishable bodies. You know, think about it. A believer hooked on a ventilator, dependent on a machine for their next breath, and immediately when the trumpet sounds, they need it no more. A believer who is on their deathbed with their family gathered around, watching them take their last long belabored breaths, wondering if the next will be their last, and the trumpet sounds, and immediately they are fully healthy and wrapped in a new body. Immediately, before you can even blink, we are going to be transformed and we are going to be changed into the likeness of Jesus. Our bodies will be imperishable but our bodies will also be immortal, unable to die anymore. No funeral homes, no sickness, no sorrow, no disease, no cancer, no car wrecks, no pneumonia, no heart attacks, strokes, no old age, no aneurysms, no infections. None of that can enter our new bodies. It is immortal. It will live forever. Beloved, that is is a change I'm longing for. But Paul says not only will there be a call, and not only will there be a change, on that day there will be a conquest as well. Because on that day, Paul says we are going to be victorious. 
I love these verses. Look what happens in verse 54. Because in verse 53, Paul told us what must happen. What must happen is this perishable must put on imperishable. This mortal must put on the immortality. So what's going to happen when that happens? Verse 54, it begins with a time marker. When, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? What is he saying here? He's saying here that at that moment when we receive our new glorified bodies, death will be defeated forever. Forever, death is going to be defeated. Here, Paul quotes from Hosea chapter 13 and Isaiah chapter 25. And he quotes about death being swallowed up in victory and about us having victory over death and over the sting of death. Paul says when we receive our new immortal, (laughs) imperishable bodies, that will be the ultimate death blow to death. That death will die on that day and it will never have its power over us again. The grave will not be able to hold us. Death will no longer be able to grip us and sin will no longer be able to sting us. Do you remember what Paul says about death earlier in this chapter? That he says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But yet when he says that, he says of Jesus, we see not yet all things put under his feet. Hmm. What's he talking about here? What is he talking about whenever he speaks of death that has been defeated and has been conquered and yet it's not yet been destroyed, that is annihilated, completely obliterated? What's he mean? But what he is saying here is that Jesus delivered the death blow to death 2,000 years ago on the cross and at the empty tomb. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, that was death's death blow but what do we still have now well we still see some effects some residual effects of death today it's still a terror on d-day in world war ii when the allied forces invaded the beaches and stormed the beaches and claimed the beaches anybody in their right mind could see that world war ii was over i mean hitler Hitler was defeated with the invasion of D-Day. No way he was going to win that war. But did Hitler just go ahead and wave the white flag and surrender and say, that's it, we're done, we can't win? No. No, I mean, you still had the Battle of the Bulge. You still had some, some key battles that took place and one strategic blunder that he made a little bit later in Russia. But, but, but anybody in their right mind could see that at D-Day, the war was over. Victory was guaranteed, but you still had the residuals of the battle that took place. Same thing in Iraq. What you had in Iraq was you had immediately the the shock and awe, the taking of Baghdad, the victory. But what did they? What have we been dealing with for century or for for a decade since then? Seems like centuries, but a decade. We've been dealing with the residual effects. We've been dealing with with with. Little pockets of resistance here and there. The victory's over, the battle's over, the war's over, but you still have little battles that go on. That's the same thing that we deal with with death. 
2,000 years ago, the battle, the war was ended. When Christ resurrected from the dead, death was defeated forever. But since that moment on, we've been dealing with residual effects of death because we live in sin-cursed bodies. Our bodies have not yet been redeemed. But on that day at the end, when we receive new bodies, immortal bodies, imperishable bodies, death will no longer be able to hold us because we will have complete victory over death and we will be raised to die no more and death will be swallowed up in victory. Death will be defeated. Saints will be victorious. Now, look what he says in verse 56. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in that day we will be victorious. We will be winners. We will be conquerors. The victory is ours. But do you notice how the victory is gained? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, it's March Madness time. My favorite time of this, the most wonderful time of the year. I love it. I'm glued to the television. I'm, I'm cheering for teams. Every game, Macy gets up in my lap and she says, Daddy, what team are we cheering for? A white team? I don't want to cheer for the blue team. And I'm like, honey, that's, that's Duke. They're the devil. You don't cheer for that team anyway. We're cheering for the other team. And uh, we're all the time picking out red team, white team, this team. We're, we're cheering for it over and over and over again. Well, last night Kentucky played. Kentucky won. And you know what amazes me? is how people who never bounced a ball, who never shot a shot in the game, never made a pass, never made a defensive stop in the game, will say, boy, we played good last night, didn't we? Boy, we, 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 we won. Wasn't that great? Did you, did you catch that plural pronoun there? We, we, Kentucky, whoever wins the national championship, and I'm praying we do, but whoever wins it, what will their fan base say? Oh, we are the champions. And the only sweat that we spill is from nerves watching the ball game. Why? Why? Well, what is that? Well, someone else earns that victory, and we just get to be a part of it. Well, beloved, there is a greater victory than anything March Madness can throw at us, and that is a victory over death, over hell, over sin, and over the grave. And the good news about it all is this. Our gracious God has sent Jesus to this earth, and he has paid the price of what it takes for us to have victory over that. And better than watching a ball game and saying we won, God has taken what Christ done. And he put it on our account. And it's as if we defeated death. As if we defeated sin. As if we fulfilled and obeyed the law. And thus we have full victory through what Jesus has done for us. Oh, the victory is ours. But Jesus attained it. And God gave it to us. That's the good news of the gospel. And thus the law has no command on us. Do you know why? Because Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. It has no legal binding demand on us. Sin has no sting. It, there is no power in sin anymore. You know why? Because the death I owed, Jesus died that death in my place. And thus, death no longer has a demand on me. 
Because it has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. All that's left for believers is victory and conquest and deliverance. And thus on that day when the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised and the saints are changed, we will look back at the grave as defeated foes. Defeated foes. Beloved, what a day is approaching in the future. Expect a call. Expect a change. Expect a conquest because they are coming. But now the question has to be asked. How does what awaits us in the future impact us in the present? Well, Paul turns his attention to the present in verse 58. And here's what he wants us to see. Paul wants us to see how our belief now affects our behavior. And in the present, in verse 58, He's going to call us first to be faithful. Look what he says. Therefore, now stop right there. Again, when you see therefore in the Bible, stop and ask yourself this question. What is therefore there for? This therefore is here to bring together all the truths he's just told us about the resurrection in chapter 15. If the resurrection is true and Christ has been raised from the dead and there is an eternal kingdom that he is going to set up and we are going to be raised from the dead, receive new bodies, and we are going to enter into that kingdom and we're going to live forever uh, victorious over sin, death, and the grave. If that is true, and it is, then here's what you do. My beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. Steadfast, immovable, be firm is what he's saying. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, if you remember back at the beginning of chapter 15, the rumors that's circulating throughout Corinth is uh, there is no resurrection from the dead. And so what Paul is saying this, that rumor is an attack on the gospel. Don't move away from the gospel and move toward that heresy and that rumor Stand firm. Be immovable. Be steadfast in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not let anything move you away from the hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be faithful to the gospel. Be faithful is what he's saying. But secondly, he's saying be fruitful. He says always abounding in the work of the Lord. You know, if there is no resurrection, then we're wasting our time gathering together this morning. I'm wasting my time studying and, and preaching. You're wasting your time witnessing to other people. Helping someone out whenever they are in need. It's a waste of time so far as eternity goes. Why even do it? Witnessing to a lost loved one, trying to, to share the gospel with them in hopes that they'll be saved is useless if there is no resurrection from the dead. Driving church buses to pick up kids to make an impact in their lives. Useless if there is no resurrection. Leaving the comforts of America, going to a foreign mission field to share the gospel with those who have never heard it before. Waste of time. Stupidest thing in the world if there is no resurrection from the dead. Paul even acknowledges this. If, if there is no resurrection, he says, eat and drink, be merry because tomorrow you die. That's it. If there is no resurrection from the dead, Stephen Hawking is right. There is no heaven. There is no afterlife. There's nothing. Your brain's just a computer that shuts off when you die, and that's it. If there is no resurrection, he is 100% correct. 
So why even do anything for the cause of Christ? Do you see how belief in the resurrection impacts your behavior? Well, now Paul says, listen, because the resurrection is true and we are going to be raised from the dead and there is a future coming where there is going to be a call, a trumpet's going to be sounded and we're going to have victory forever and ever, then because of that, be sure right now, you are always abounding in the work of the Lord. Be busy about the Father's business. Why? Why? Because this world is not the end of it. We will be rewarded. We will be in heaven forever. And thus, we can work now because there is a future tomorrow. No resurrection, no judgment. Live however you want to. No resurrection, no rewards. Then who cares about what you do here? No resurrection, no glorifying Christ forever. But Paul says no, because there is a resurrection. Be fruitful, always abounding in the work of the Lord. But then he says be hopeful. Here's why. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What does that mean? Knowing in the Lord that your labor is not in vain. Here's what it means. Well, one, I think it's a warning to us that there are some times whenever we do feel like we labor in vain. Sometimes we do want to throw up our hands and sometimes even throw in the towel and wonder, does it, does it even matter? Have I impacted anybody's life? Have I made an impact on eternity? And you really think, feel as if you're fighting against the air. But Paul says, no, because there is a resurrection, you can know for sure that everything you do for the Lord is not in vain. You are accomplishing something. Teaching that Sunday school class when you don't feel like it. Working with the youth when, when, when you'd rather be home. Fixing a meal for a grieving family. Showing compassion on the lost. Preaching a sermon. Teaching a class. Witnessing to unbelievers. All of those things are not in vain. Scripture says in Revelation 14, 13. John, seeing the vision of heaven, hears this voice and he, he hears the voice that says, write this. I want you to write this down, John. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, indeed, says the Spirit, they do rest from their labors and their works follow them. Wow. You know, I've preached many funerals and been a part of many funerals and I've yet to see any hearse followed by a U-Haul to the cemetery. Your material doesn't follow you. Your money doesn't follow you. What you have in this world doesn't follow you. But I promise you, if we could see the spiritual, there would be a whole lot of things follow people to the grave and beyond. It would be those deeds that they have done, the works that they have done. They follow them. So I ask you today in your life, what is following you from this life? What is following you into eternity? When you stand before God, I'll tell you exactly what's following you. What you have done for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10 says, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love that you have shown to his name. He will not forget it. He won't forget it. And Jesus even said that if you will as much as give a cold drink, to a prophet in my name, you will in no wise lose your reward. You know, right now we live in a time where the battle's raging. We're in the midst of the battle right now. 
and you don't stop a war in the middle of a battle and hand out rewards. You wait until the battle's over. You wait until the war's ended. And then rewards are handed out. Well, that's exactly what will happen in that day when we will receive the rewards for what we have done in our bodies. So listen, I don't know what you are going through. I don't know the, the problems that you're facing in your life, but I do know one thing. If you know Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, your future's bright. <laughs> it is bright. Your future is great. Your outlook is great. Do you know why? Because there is a new garment, a new body awaiting you on that day. But I also know this, no matter how well things are going for you in your life, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, things don't look good for you. Things are not good for you. As a matter of fact, just as saints will be resurrected in new bodies that can endure the joys of heaven forever and enjoy it, so too the Bible speaks of a resurrection of the unjust as well. Death and hell will deliver up the dead that are in them. They will stand before God and they will receive a final judgment. They too will receive a body that will be able to endure the flames and the tortures and the sufferings of hell forever. They'll die and die and die and never be able to die forever and ever and ever. And you know the difference between the two? Is those who get to heaven Go to heaven one way. That's through faith in Jesus and him alone. Not on any works that they have ever done or ever could do. Those that go to hell, they go their way. They try to get there on their own goodness, on their own deeds, because they're better than somebody else, or because they think they will be good enough in that day. And they're not. So today I ask you, do you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you believe he died on a cross, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day? Do you believe that? If you have never confessed him as your Lord and as your Savior, I urge you, do so today. Make reservations for this resurrection. You don't want to miss it. You don't want to be on the wrong side of it. And there's only one way to be ready, and that's to have faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you trust Jesus?